What's up? Welcome to the Confluence VC podcast. This podcast is meant to give you a personal glimpse into the next era of investors and operators. This week we got on Rachel Lauren of BDMI. BDMI is an early stage fund that makes investments in the innovative companies in the tech and media landscape. Although the fund specializes in digital media, Rachel focuses most of her time helping the fund diversify its focus to more enterprise software and fintech deals. In this talk, we discuss missed opportunity areas within consumer fintech, the future of retail and areas for excitement within commerce, and the legitimacy of NFTs and whether or not they can be considered an investable category for money managers. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, so everyone, welcome to the Confluence VC podcast. We've got a really good friend, Rachel Lauren from BDMI, just really here kicking it with us, and we're uh, going to dive into some really interesting stuff. Thank you so much for coming to hang out with us. We really love what your firm is doing in the broader company as well, and you also have a super dope path. So how about to get things kicked off, you give us a, a quick two-minute background sure. on yourself and how you got to where you are. Yeah. And thanks for having me. This is great. So yeah, I work at BDMI, which is it's a corporate venture fund. And our parent company is Bertelsmann, which is a big German company. Probably never heard of. I actually didn't hear of it before I joined, but you've definitely heard of its subsidiaries. So we own Penguin Random House Publishing, which is one of the largest book publishers in the world. We get a nice little perk of seven free books a quarter, which is great. We own so Fremantle dope. Media. Yeah, it's awesome. We own Fremantle Media, which is the, the TV production company that does American Idol, America's Got Talent, Price is Right, Family Feud, X Factor, all those fun reality shows. We have a record label, a magazine division, a BPO services division. So it's this massive kind of German conglomerate. We operate pretty independently from the parent company in the sense that it's a dedicated fund. We operate like an institutional venture fund where we don't have any weird strings attached or any operating deals required to make an investment. We're fairly generalist. So historically, the fund has been primarily digital media, but we've diversified a lot outside of that. So we invest in consumer tech more broadly in FinTech and in enterprise SaaS. It's all early stage. So seed to series B, pretty flexible. So lead, co-lead, follow, all of the above. And yeah, I came in, my focus, or at least my background, I was at Credit Suisse before in equity research covering enterprise software companies. So your typical kind of Zoom, Adobe, Intuit, those types of companies came in wanting to learn more um, on the consumer side. That was primarily the reason why, you know, I, I wanted to come into the fund, but at the same time wanting to utilize my skills and knowledge on the enterprise SaaS uh, and FinTech side to help out there where I think the fund has evolved for sure. Yeah. That's super dope. So I am admittedly a bit disappointed on how separated you all are from the broader because one, I want to be an artist at some point and I need to get signed. <laughs> what kind of music? No kind of music. You got to go acr across genres to make it nowadays. But uh, I'm, I'm going to take a data-centered approach where I'm looking at what are the trends and what's like at the forefront and just make stuff like that. But uh, for capital view of making music, what are the, what's the market landscape? Where are the, where are the holes in the market? Where can that's I- That's what I think about it. Like Drake was like a Afrobeats rapper a right. few years ago. 
Now he's like a UK rapper. He's just always ahead of the trend. And in addition to that, Clay and I want to at some point turn uh, a lot of the content from the Confluence Resource Database and these podcasts into a book. So <laughs> at some point, we're going to ask you for a non-investment favor. Okay. <laughs> we're not, listen, we do like quarterly calls with all the divisions all the time. We're always talking to them. So it's not like we don't do anything with them at all. Obviously, we're financial investors first, strategic second. So where we can make connections to our internal Bertelsmann divisions, we do, because obviously that's an awesome and, and massive network for us. And not just that, but like our broader media and brand like network and ecosystem is, is pretty vast. So it's definitely something that, that we do all the time. And that's sort of the value that we bring aside from just being financial investors. But yeah, so I, I say it's independent because I don't want people to, people always, <laughs> I think corporate VCs into kind of like the strategics category. And so they're like, if it's not, strategic, then we don't want your money. But I think the partners are just awesome people, really smart investors, like great people to lean on. And so that's why I focus on kind of the institutional side of it. Totally agreed. I feel you a thousand percent. You definitely don't. It's not that you don't want to be bucketed into the strategic bucket, but like I see the reason not to. And what's really interesting is for you all have so much depth as a firm or as a broader holding company that it would be pretty hard to bucket you all into anything yeah. <laughs> anyway in terms of what yeah. your strategic value is. But with that, let's focus a little bit more on you because you're dope. Can you tell us a bit more about what you're specifically focused on within your role? And then from there, we get to dive a bit more into some of the specific topics you love. Sure. It's a tiny team. It's a five-person investment team. There's three partners um, and then me and an associate. I, I help out on everything from sourcing to diligence, all the way down to like legal and running through docs and, and making sure everything signed off and wired and, and, and all that fun stuff. In terms of what I've found my, my niche uh, within BDMI is what I mentioned before. The fund historically, as I mentioned, was primarily a digital media fund. I think we've diversified a lot, mainly because we realized that there, is a there are a lot more companies that are relevant for us as a large enterprise that we can either vet, vet internally within our divisions, or we could be helpful to. We started looking at a lot more enterprise software deals. We started looking at a lot more fintech deals. And that's, that's where some of my experience comes in. So in college, that was my first foray into venture. I had done a bunch of internships, one in, one in Israel, one in London at a fintech-focused venture fund. And I really enjoyed it. And that was primarily the reason I wanted to go into venture was because of those experiences and then ended up going the traditional finance route instead right out of college and then still ended up making my way making my way back into, into venture thankfully but I definitely think that I've because those are areas like enterprise software and fintech those are areas that I think the fund hasn't necessarily prior or has only just started prioritizing or thinking about those are areas that I've been really focused on I think fintech in particular like I've sourced about six deals that we've invested in since I joined. And I think half of those are fintech deals. And like we've, those are the majority of the fintech deals that we've done in the last like couple of years. So I'm, I'm pretty excited about that. Wow. That's phenomenal. So we have a lot of people on, on the podcast that come from different areas in the prior to their venture experience. Some of them, of course, go directly in a venture like Clay and I, but we don't see many people who come from the equity research side of things. I personally believe that equity research folks are probably some of the people best suited to become venture capitalists. One, because they have to have like incredibly profound 
knowledge in any area that they cover. I think you did cyber or something like that when you Yeah. Were- so it was software, but yeah, they put me, they stuck me in cyber, which I, I knew nothing about when I joined. It took me like eight months to ramp up and then, but then it was crazy. You think about it, right? Like you're writing pieces on those spaces, which means you have to actually think about it. You have to ask about it. You have to know the entirety of the landscape and you're also measuring like market psyche and how other people may interpret it. I don't know many jobs that port better over an adventure, maybe outside of being a founder who has some type of investing experience. If I, or when I decide to hire folks, like I'm giving preferential treatment to equity research folks. Pretty well, I'm, I'm very happy to hear that. And it's funny because when I started interviewing for, for venture jobs, people used to tell me like, oh, research isn't like the, the clearest path. Most people they take from banking or other people that were in venture before or were at startups. And that kind of confused, and actually I had heard from a couple people as I told them, oh, I'm in equity research. I know that's not really a a direct funnel, but like I'm interested. And some funds were like, yeah, we totally love that. And I, they they were like you, they totally agreed. That was, it was a great place to hire from because you do have to write these really in-depth reports and know a lot about a particular space and just do a crap ton of research. So I'm happy that you say that because listen, I'm biased, but I I totally agree. So yeah. It just makes, it makes perfect sense. It's like I can hire a consultant who can solve problems for my, for my portfolio and probably do some research. I can hire a banker who's just like really clean and focuses on transaction structures, or I can get a equity analyst who knows everything about a space. (laughs) When people tell me that research is not, it's not a clear path. I look to Bill Gurley, who by the way, was a research analyst at, at Credit Suisse, which is where I was at the time. I think it was first Boston, but he's now one of the most like well-known venture capitalists, you know, investor in Uber, like one of the first investors in Uber. And I, I look to him a little bit as a, as a guide and as someone who went through research and covered internet companies. So yeah. I think that's what I use as an example when people are like, I could do research, really? Yeah, you should just start like telling people I'm better at this than you. You can't put out a 200 page report on your area of interest, trust me. You noted, which now I'm incredibly interested in finding out why this is the case, because I know you're going a few steps deeper, that you believe within FinTech, there are a number of missed opportunities on the consumer side. I, in both me and Clay, and Clay's done a little bit more consumer FinTech, I believe, than I have, uh, are FinTech investors. And I tend to focus as much as I can on like the infrastructure layer, the enterprise layer, bank enablement, APIs, et cetera. And then I'll look like across the pond or an emerging markets for consumer stuff. Maybe I'll find like a really great company on the consumer side with metrics, but I'm curious as to what as like the, the diamonds in the rough or like the needles in the haystack that we just don't because you're a killer. Yeah, I, for sure. I think. Part of the problem in consumer fintech that I think investors are hung up on at this point is customer acquisition cost, right? There's so much saturation in the market. There's so many players out there that are like trying to launch new products. And that's almost why like the infrastructure layer is super compelling right now because everyone's trying to launch new consumer fintech products. And so if you're just, if you're the picks and shovels enabling all of this, that's awesome. I do think that in all of this noise of all of these companies trying to launch like a new lending product or a new credit card product, there's still a massive issue for a lot of consumers where a lot of people are still in a crap ton of credit card or credit card debt or in general, like student loan debt, all different types of debt. And a lot of people have this misconception that debt is an income problem, that people aren't generating enough income. And so therefore they get into debt that I 
from the research that I've seen, that's generally not the case. It's primarily a spending problem where people don't have a budget. They don't know how much they can spend in a month to not go over. They don't really know how credit cards work, partially a financial literacy problem. And obviously you have all these new products being launched, but I don't think anything out there is really targeting the root cause of these issues and trying to help the consumer, right? You have all these personal lending companies that have been around for super long, helping people consolidate their credit card debt. And at the time it was a super compelling proposition. Yeah, we're going to take your 25% APR, we're going to cut it in half and you're going to be debt free. But then when you realize it's a spending problem, I think the idea of giving someone five to 10 grand and not telling them like how to use it and someone who is an overspender, that's probably a bad idea and not a way to get them out of debt. And then on top of that layer on the fact that all of these companies are trying to give you more loans after you're done with the first one, which is not someone who's trying to get out of debt is not interested in another loan. You got you to gotta increase your LTV because you spent so much money to acquire that customer. So it's a tough game, right? That's what I'm saying. I think investors have spurned it because CACs are so high. But I, in my opinion, I think that means there's room for players to come in that are actually trying to help consumers, that are actually trying to develop products, new types of products that are not predatory, that are trying to get people out of debt or build credit or solve these underlying behavioral issues that you know are driving some of these problems and educational issues too. So that's where I think the white space is. And I think inherently that'll drive down the CAC for those players because they'll ultimately have a differentiated product. So that that's my view there. I think we, we for sure have gotten hung up on the fact that there's just so much saturation in all these new, in all these new consumer products. So I actually really like the way that you're looking at this. I spent a ton of time thinking about if CAC is the problem, I should just go invest in the platform that may be FinTech adjacent or may be like some type of really interesting hook, assuming it's not easily copyable. Yeah. Um, and then if they have all the users, just embed the infrastructure layer into it, because then you have all these super high LTV FinTech products that actually can be applicable without you having to be predatory. And you also could probably diversify into other revenue streams too. Yeah. But like this whole concept of a true value drive is something that I'm like, I've always thought about it, but I've never pushed that as like a narrative. So that's something I'm going to definitely incorporate into my memos and my like thought processes going forward. Thank you for that. Yeah, no, that, that sounds great. And I think part of the problem also is because there's so much noise out there, I think trust has become a major issue, even for new fintechs, right? There was this whole narrative for a while that all these fintechs are coming in and disrupting the banks and everyone now trusts these new consumer brands because they're not City or JP Morgan or like they're not Chase or whoever. But I don't know that's necessarily the case anymore. I think there's still a big trust issue. And I think there's still room for not even room, but an opportunity to create a brand that is really highly trusted by consumers that, that kind of stirs the pot. I think Lemonade did a really great job of that, for example, even though I don't know that what they built was so crazy, innovative and different. <laughs> they just built a really awesome brand. We're able to market it really well. And that's the innovation, right? Like I'm a Lemonade customer. I will probably be a Lemonade customer for a long time. I think companies like that are doing interesting things. I'm curious, are there any like specific types of companies you're looking for? There's a thousand investors. I think we got, we got 1300 investors now. And then of them, 450 of them are looking at FinTech or something yeah. FinTech adjacent. Do you have I, any specific categories that you want to drop that you're looking for so people can see you stuff? Yeah, I definitely think in the debt space and the debt consolidation space, that's what I'm interested in. Like we invested in a company called Extra 
that's building a credit card, a subscription credit card, uh, not credit card, sorry, a subscription debit card with credit building powers. So essentially the idea is that it's like your typical debit card, but you have, you get rewards out of it. And it's not like you're 25% off at Olive Garden that you might get with other debit cards. It's like actually meaningful rewards where you can build up points or something closer to a Chase Sapphire kind of experience. I mean, you pay a subscription and they, they make money on the interchange, but they actually give that back to you. And that's how they're able to how, that's how they're able to offer rewards, which is awesome. And on top of that, you're actually able to build your credit, which is a huge issue for people who have been burned by credit cards who want to go to debit, but at the same time need to rebuild, need to rebuild their credit. I think it's, it's a massive value prop for those guys. Have you, have you looked at a company called Clerky? I haven't. So Clerky is actually a, a company that's doing pretty well. It's founded by African-Americans. So shout out to, to Guy, Guy Asad, who's a, a killer. Effectively, what they do is they take all of your credit information. They look at all the loans you have outstanding, and then they automate the payback and negotiation on your behalf. So you sign up for Clerky, they'll say, hey, you have these six or seven outstanding lines of credit. Two might be student loans. One might be a home loan. One might be a car. And then you might have four credit cards or something like that. They'll say, hey, we'll one, offer you the consolidation pieces like everyone else does. But two, we'll negotiate on your behalf. And three, we'll on the back end start to pay off all of these things in the most efficient manner possible that will improve your credit the fastest. So there are a lot of things that recommend how you do things, a lot of things that will help you understand where you are, but not many of them just say, hey, sign into these three accounts or just give us your social security number and your phone number and then do everything for you. And they're growing very quickly. Uh, I'm trying to remember who gave it to me. Was it, Fra- it might've been Fraser Anderson mm-hmm. at Vestigo, but uh, yeah, they're crushing it. You should check them out. And yeah, if you want- for sure. I'll, I'll check it out. One of, one of the things though, I want to mention, did a bunch of research in the space and talked to people. And one of the things that I found was like a really interesting insight was that you think that like people want automation, right? Like I personally want automation. Like I'm in a place where I have a handle on my finances and I just want things on autopilot. I want people to do things for me. But for a lot of people who like got themselves in a really bad place and kind of didn't know how they got themselves there, there's this like transition period of time where they actually want to sit down and have a hands-on experience and be forced to figure out what they did mainly so that they can learn from their mistakes and actually change their behavior. So I think automation is super important and interesting, but I, I almost feel like it's for their, the, the demographic that, it is, that it's for is different than the kind of person that like spent a bunch of money on their credit cards or got into a bunch of debt and then had that oh crap moment and needed to sit down and figure out what happened. Because at the end of the day, like automating it away and like paying everything off, it solves that problem in the short term but it doesn't guarantee that person doesn't get themselves in that same situation again. In hundred percent, that's you got it. You definitely have to combine both. I think yeah. Clerky is doing that pretty well. They have the standard features of other apps where they tell you what's happening, why it's happening, how this like paying this down or having your credit utilization under I- C L E R C I E dot I O or something like that. And then they have a, a really interesting chat thing that'll tell you about becoming like a fire saver and. Like these, all these different acronyms like tight, comfort, fire, they actually do a lot of the education. I think the hook there, which I don't know if there's like a white label solution for this, for what Clerky is doing, or maybe I think Clerky is actually becoming like a white label solution for some pretty large startups, especially in the gig economy space. Yeah. 
But I think for me, it's just if I could have found, like, if Credit Karma, like, just let me press a button, I would be so much happier than them, like, yeah. all giving me an update every day. Key part. For sure. Okay, so every time a fintech person comes on, we start to get very nerdy and go into these long tangent thoughts. Yeah. And, like, I'm in love with it. And, Clay, if you want to, like, hop in here because you love fintech as well, you literally work for a phone call, like, something fintech venture. <laughs> Welcome to. But if not, we can dive into a few other things. No, I think you guys covered it all. I think we can we can jump around to the next one, which is completely unrelated to fintech. But Jeez, I guess it's more tangential. Hey, yeah, you want right. to cool. So NFTs have been one of the most talked about subjects on like Twitter, which now like Twitter's competitor Clubhouse and a ton of other platforms, even TikTok. How do you think about NFTs as an individual and as a VC? And do you believe that a legitimate market is being created around these types of assets versus just being hype? Yeah, I think that NFTs in the last couple of months have benefited from this crazy like investment boom overall in the market. So whether that's public equities or crypto, they've definitely benefited. I think the interesting thing about NFTs, and I'm like, I'm not like a huge crypto person. My friends convinced me to put 200 bucks into Bitcoin. And the main reason is because I'm very much like a, I'm a very like long-term investor. Like I need to know what the business is doing. I need to know like where cash flow is coming from. What is the basis of like, where is the value of this? Whereas for Bitcoin, it's obviously very speculatory. You can totally make money. I'm just awful. I feel like I'm not good at timing markets. So I just, I generally stayed away. But for me, NFTs are interesting because I think unlike crypto, they offer some sort of inherent value um, beyond just like the speculatory nature of trading collectibles. I think for a lot of people, they have sentimental value. If it's a if it's a player that they like, or if it's an artist that they like, it's showing off their fandom. They're able to collect. There's a lot of like when it comes to baseball cards or trading cards, people collect them just to have them, to show them to people, to to have that collection. You don't really have that type of that type of thing with crypto. So I think there's inherent value in, in that in and of itself. And then on the art side, similarly, people get aesthetic value out of seeing art, even you know, if it's digital art, obviously, for digital art, it's been hard to monetize for a while because it's been so reproducible. And I think NFTs have brought it brought it into this universe that that people can monetize a little bit better. And you can ascribe ownership to these unique pieces of art. I think that's super interesting. And people are talking about an NFT bubble. I totally agree. There's, they've ridden the wave of everything else that's going on in the market. But I do think we it has inherent long-term value that will stick it out that I think we'll probably see less crazy fluctuations that, that you've seen in Bitcoin. Bitcoin is interesting because it hasn't had that much value other than the speculatory nature for a while. Nobody was really using it for transactions besides for like criminals and people selling drugs. I think now there's like somewhat more opportunities to, to transact with Bitcoin. But in general, I think NFTs just have more underlying value, either from a sentimental perspective or from an aesthetic perspective to people that, that sort of give it that, that staying power. The same way that collecting art does or collecting physical trading cards does like that. That's how I see it. So yeah, we're super interested in it at BDMI. We've been looking at a lot of different companies in the space, obviously. Everything's incredibly overvalued right now because the market has been doing really well, despite obviously, despite the fact there was like a 70, I think people reported it was like a 70% drop in NFT prices either this week or last week. So you're already starting to see 
things in the price, which I'm happy about because it means better investment opportunities for us, but I'm definitely a proponent. Are you looking at individual NFTs or are you looking at the actual infrastructure or platforms that enable the, the trading or ownership? Oh no, for sure. The infrastructure platforms, there's a lot of companies out there. The problem is that right now, I don't know that technology is really going to be the, the, the differentiator. Everyone's building similar things. It's really more about execution at this point. There's a company that's working, it's working with a lot of television and media companies called Curio Digital and they're signing deals with them, which is awesome. And so knowing the right people in the industry, I think is really important for this segment to get the right deals done. But at the end of the day, it's going to be a slog because there's going to be so many different companies that are going to try to become marketplaces and mint these things. We're really excited about a company called Infinite Objects that basically allows you, they're a digital print shop. And so they started as, imagine like an LCD display screen that plays your favorite video or a digital artwork, but it, it only has that one piece of art. So you'd think, oh, like, why would I want that? Like, why wouldn't I just buy like a Samsung LCD display and like power in a, a video and I could change it up whenever I want. I think what's interesting and, and magical about Infinite Objects is that because it's only one video, and it's almost like, it's almost featureless, right? Like you open it up and it just plays it. It feels much more like a piece of art, feels much more unique and, and personal versus just like having a piece of hardware that like cycles through photos and videos. So we're really excited about them and they're moving into the NFT space as well and allowing people, allowing artists to basically partner with them and offer their digital um, artworks as a physical object as well. So we're really excited about like bringing NFTs into the physical world also. I would love to learn more about that. I've actually been talking to a buddy of mine who's a successful entrepreneur who asked me if I wanted to start a company like that with him who helped bring NFT or crypto assets into the physical world. So I'm thinking those are really interesting, either as investments or companies to start. And I'm also looking for, which this may just be like a feature versus like a company, hmm. like a drive wealth of NFTs or like someone who can enable ownership or purchasing of NFTs as a service on any of these consumer apps, hopefully in a fractional, from a fractional perspective versus having to own the entirety of the asset. But that's really dope. And if you see any, let us know. One, just because we're super interested and could end up using them or using them in our personal lives. And two, if we can do a confluence syndicate for them as a co-investor, like a small ticket co-investor, we'll cut you in on the economics. So let yeah. us know. Tell me a little bit about the syndicate. How does that, how do you, how does, how is that structured? How does that work? Yeah, it's pretty simple. The way that we structured it was like, we realized that no one in our, like we, at this point we have 1300 plus investors across 900 funds. I think we have 97% coverage of relevant funds. And mm -hmm. if people take that offensively, I'm sorry. <laughs> Cause I'm not counting like family offices and stuff like that. And like, that, that, that universe, there's just too many rich people now. And that being said, if you're a junior person, like anyone who's not effectively a senior partner, you're barely getting any carry and it's on a terrible cliff, right? It's on a four to six year cliff, whereas most people stay in a seat for two to three years on average. So they never see any equity. Plus they get paid less than their peers in growth equity hedge funds, et cetera. Yeah. So what we're doing is saying like, hey, you all do 90% of the work. You all see across our community, we probably see 100% of deals that happen in venture. How about this? If you all have a portfolio company that you want to get equity into, like we'll co-invest with you. We'll take less than one or 2% of the cap table space for the next round, like maximum 10% if it's a small round. And in exchange, like whatever capital that we deploy from the small pool of capital that we've raised from like a traditional LP base, plus from the venture, like the Confluence community, we'll give yeah. you uh, a large chunk 
of the carry that we receive on those deals. So effectively, it puts you in a position to where if you're at your fund and you want to co-invest, you're a value add to your fund because you're bringing in extra capital and that extra capital is giving exposure to the deals that you all are doing. And the value is like this fund who's on or this check that's on our cap table takes no space, but it's adding effectively the support and financial alignment of a thousand plus investors who all have the resources of their funds that they can help with. So junior VCs who are unaccredited, are you guys only taking accredited people or how does, how does that work? Yeah. So the way that it works is people have to self-select whether or not they're accredited in these processes. So we give people the freedom to make that choice. That's the first piece. But like, second, there's a lot of there, like the way that you become accredited is right. Like you make a certain amount of money over a two year period, or depending on how you're reading the, the legal terms, if you work at a private investment firm, or if you have a net worth of X, or if you've taken X exams or got a series something. So there's a lot of ways to become accredited and a lot of people Definitely opened it up. I heard from someone that now, I want to understand the rule better, but basically they found like one of the new rules is that if you work for a fund and that fund invests in that company, that you're eligible to to co-invest. I don't know if I read that, but yeah, that was something that basically they were able to see. Yeah. So a lot of people interpret that as if only if your fund invests, can you invest? Some people interpret it as if you work for a fund, then you can invest in whatever you want. Mm -hmm. And then also there's thoughts around like, syndicates versus direct. And there's a lot of these types of things. And I think the whole point of having these accredited investor rules is about protection. Yeah. It's, it's more so that people don't get a whole bunch of random people who know nothing about a company and effectively do what people deal with ICOs, right? <laughs> uh, that's the point. If you're a venture investor and you know how to evaluate companies and you can make your own decisions, like if you were to self-select that you were an accredited investor because the lo- like the, the legality around it is like gray, I think that's like kind of just a thing on you. And I personally just don't speak on it. I let people read the rules. <laughs> and I hope that people like really take that seriously because yeah. it, the everything that exists for a reason and I'm a supporter of consumer or a retail investor protection. So effectively like taking that away, the whole point is we want people in our community to be able to build really great track records, assuming they're accredited. And we want people in our community who are doing all this work, but aren't getting paid to finally have a mechanism to where if they actually are seeing the best in class deals, they can then go get the same kind of economics that their partners can get with no cliff. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I'd love to, I'd love to figure out how to be a part of that. Yeah, it's official now. As part of our podcast and advisory list, you automatically will get like some preferential compared to just like the broader community, one, and then two, and we'll send out an uh, email to explain that. And then too, just like anyone in our community who's like doing like really dope deals or have a portfolio company or two that are about to break out that they're seeing that's not in their portfolio, just email me and Clay. We'll talk to you for a few hours or maybe like maybe even a few minutes if it's like super obvious. <laughs> and then we'll syndicate it on your behalf and you'll then have that carry. And hopefully it exists for the next three to seven years. You know how this yeah. stuff goes now. But uh, all right, you're a very interesting human being. So we've gone off off uh, script a few times now. You want to talk about the future of where retail is headed, and like, you want to be like fintech is that? But like, fine. <laughs> like, give us your thoughts on on retail. It sounds like you've been like really crushing it in that space and put out some pretty good thought in that space. So, where wh- what are your thoughts on where it's going and why? Yeah. So at BDMI, we look at this a lot mainly because for us as 
a company or Bertelsmann is a company that, that does a lot in content, obviously is trying to find new ways to monetize that content or to partner with brands in a, in a different way. And we've had this big thesis around content to commerce for quite a while and are investing around that. And so I think when you look at like direct to consumer and all these like new uh, brands popping up all the time, at first when it started happening, it was cool and shiny new object and everyone wanted to invest. And I think now the, that shininess has worn off a little bit. And part of that is because people at first, people were saying, okay, that they can go, they don't have to go to the wholesaler. They don't have to give them a cut. They could just go direct and get, get the customer data, which is super valuable in terms of building that relationship. But then you started getting a new mantra, which is that CAC is the new rent. Facebook and Instagram and all these platforms started making a ton of money on everyone trying to advertise. It started getting saturated. It started getting really tough. Same as in FinTech, right? Started getting really tough to, to market to people and make money to, to make have revenue growth profitably. And so we started to look at, we got really interested in this as a content company or as a media company, because we think that there's, there is a big thesis around, or we have a big thesis around using content in order to drive down customer acquisition costs and to build that relationship with the customer. So there's a company we invested in pretty early on called Sticks, and they're doing uh, women's personal care. And their whole shtick, which, which we found really interesting, is that they were selling Midwest and South to women who, and, and a lot of their, their initial product was a subscription pregnancy test, an ovulation test. And so they're selling to women who have not had a lot of sexual education, women who are embarrassed to go to the store and buy all these products. And so they're offering, they have the, this massive library of content. They were offering all of this advice to people and funneling that into is just a way more compelling. We think that using content as a funnel into, into sales is just like a way more compelling way to create a profitable and sustainable business. On top of the fact that you're building a consumer brand trust, especially in that category, we think you're offering, you're offering content that's really valuable to people uh, where they're learning, you're destigmatizing a lot of these conversations, particularly in, in, in women's health. And so there's other companies as well, like Food52 is a former portfolio company of ours that we exited that initially started as a recipe site. And they were a traditional digital media company that sold ads and on top of their content. And then realized that it's that's a, it's a tough business model or became a tough business model. And <laughs> they started selling their own cookware. And that became a super high growth business for them. Really successful business. And so that's what drove part of that thesis for us in direct-to-consumer. And so now whenever we look at companies in, in consumer or retail, we try to look for companies with that type of angle where they're really building up interesting consumer brand, building trust via content that then funnels into, into sales. Love it. I really think just the way that you articulated some of the stuff earlier about like actually driving value and actually driving trust in relationships, like playing over in events makes a ton of sense. Like I was reading about sticks not too long after you all did it. Cause so I looked at companies like my lab box and a few others as well. And then like my friends, Maria, who runs steel sky, which you need to meet if you haven't and Cheryl Campos, who's at Republic, but also partner at the community fund do a lot of women's health tech. And I love that Sticks has a layer in which like people don't have anything show up on their credit card statement. It's everything is super discreet. They also have the education library and all these other things. I, I, I think that playing those kind of things will have defensible trust build brands over time is even more applicable in retail as things become more and more competitive. 
Sure. I've also been seeing like a ton of companies like on the, like for instance, for the cookware company you were just speaking of, I've been seeing companies that are literally just becoming social media companies first. Yeah. <laughs> and like they'll scale there because the CAC of building an Instagram page is actually incredibly low. <laughs> they'll do that and then they'll start just selling a ton of stuff through it with like a very intentional means of doing so. Collecting data along the way, like touting small product releases along the way and then releasing something huge. So. You're yeah. spot on ahead of the curve on that. Yeah, there's a company that we looked at called Package Free. Really interesting because it's literally, this. it was this influencer that built a massive following in being sustainable and zero waste. And she just, she built up this Instagram page and then decided to start having a marketplace where she sold all these products where some of them were third party and then some of them, I think they're developing themselves as well. So like using that angle is, to drive sales like it's there's no reason to just build product and go out and do facebook marketing anymore unless like you built like the world's best product that everyone wants there's some companies doing it really well our place is an example like a cookware brand that's just literally killing it everyone wants that freaking pan they have a bunch of different colors they've just done a really good job at merchandising it and i don't know that there's really a content play there a social media play like it's just a great product that everyone wants. But I think that for us, there's definitely, there's definitely competitive advantages we see around, around building, uh, building that kind of community um, around the brand. You got to check out this one company called August. And what it does is for women during their period, like they have now a huge Instagram following. They created a Discord channel where like thousands of women are just talking about like every topic that has to do with that part of their life, telling each other about the ups, the downs, how they found hacks for certain problems that they've experienced or how they like taking care of their mental health and emotional states during that time. And through that, they're becoming a distribution channel. But like the fact that they have effectively like slack on steroids kind of thing going on for their customer base makes it to where it'll be incredibly hard for anyone to compete if they are able to get scale. That's no, I mean, that's awesome, right? Like, I think it's almost, it's becoming kind of table stakes to build a massive venture scale business, at least in direct to consumer and to get investment because it's, yeah, it's become so crowded. People have gotten so disinterested. So I think stories like that and plays like that are are really interesting. 100%. Yo, so Clay, I know we're about to, we're hitting a a large time window here. Clay, you want to come bless us with your beautiful voice and hit us with some quick fire questions? Because I'm, I'm following up with you after this at some point soon anyway, Rachel. So how about you take us out? Oh, and then Rachel, if you have any questions for us, feel free to ask now or at the end. Oh, I'll ask it then. Cool. I can, I can jump through these quick fire questions. So Rachel, we do these at the end. Each question, we've got five of them. We're supposed to be answered in two sentences or less. Don't have a great hit rate on people ask, actually answering in two sentences or less, but we try to give those guardrails. First one we've got is what is a recommendation you hear regularly that you think is bad advice? Yeah, maybe not a recommendation, but just a thing I see people doing or companies doing, which is raising massive rounds at absurd valuations when they don't really have any traction because it sounds sexy and they want to get this interesting investor on board. I think it just sets way too high of a bar for the company and the investor is doing it because like they, they have a target they have to hit in terms of how much they're investing. So it just makes it too hard to really beat that uh, for the next round. Yeah. And it sets the founder up for a down yeah. round later. Couldn't agree more. See that a lot now. Uh, next one. In the last year, what new belief behavior habit has most improved your life? Not feeling so tied down to where I am. I went to Miami for a couple months from November until 
February, uh, till the end of January. And that was like, you know, that was one of the best experiences. And I'm definitely happy, at least for COVID, that we, there's a silver lining that we had this opportunity to try to live in different places. Yeah, Tyler and I are both nomadic indefinitely. And I think I'm speaking for both of us, but it's pretty awesome. Don't exactly. think I'm ever going back to just signing a 12 month lease. Don't see that happening anytime so soon. I just renewed my lease, but our plan is to, there's a bunch of people that are going to be graduating in September. We'll definitely take our apartment because like we live in a Jewish community and everyone wants to be here because like, it's like single and mingle type of situation where I live for young Jews. And so there's definitely people who will take our apartment. I think we're just going to figure out to go somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah. Go somewhere warmer. Yeah. All right. Next one. Aside from having to say no all the time, what's the worst part about venture? Meeting cool companies that you can't really work for. <laughs> so all the time I'll invest, like when we'll invest, I'll be like, wow, I want to like get a little bit deeper and like really do more work with you guys. And there's definitely that like investor barrier of how much can you really, how much can you really help? How much do you really know uh, that you can be beneficial? Yeah. Totally agree. It's frustrating. All right. Next one. Best piece of advice for junior VCs or those aspiring to break into venture? Just be super opinionated and don't be afraid to be wrong. When I was interviewing, the majority of the interviews was just like, tell me what you think about this. And they just want to see that like you you care and you've done research and maybe at least being humble about the idea that like you you might be wrong about that opinion and trying to dig deeper and see if that's the case uh, but definitely you should find something you're interested in and really have a strong opinion yeah we've had seems like a lot of guests have had like similar thoughts on it. it's just do the job before you actually have the job and i yeah. think like writing synthesizing your thoughts like going deep on a couple of subjects rather than having depth over breadth with it which is a little bit different than what most VCs actually do. I think it's really good advice though. All right, last one from me. Who's a mentor that you'd want to give credit to? My former coworker, Saeed, who taught me how to do financial modeling. I literally didn't know what I was doing and also taught me not to take crap from people. And my, <laughs> my, my other older boss, who also was at Credit Suisse. So my, my older boss, Sammy. Do you do a lot of modeling at BDMI? I, I don't understanding how the models work or like calling people out when like their models don't look right or like they're not including very important things. I think definitely like having banking or research experience or having financial modeling experience is, is important to being able to tell people whether their models are, are BS. But yeah, I don't do very much of my own modeling, building models. Yeah. I think all my friends in banking would throw up on my modeling skills, but... <laughs> I'm like, I'm working on it whenever I have downtime. But no, that's awesome. Tyler, did I miss anything there? I think you're good. The question that we usually forget is who do you want to see on the Confluence community and or podcast? That is a good question. I don't know if you guys have interviewed Varun from Rebel. He's awesome. Uh, he's an associate at Rebel Partners in New York. Uh, really nice guy. Knows a lot. Really smart. So... Yeah, you should totally interview him. If you wanna, if you want that to happen, intro yep. us and we'll do it. If once someone comes on our podcast, like they were recommended by someone, and we're like, if you're that dope, whoever you think is dope is probably dope. So if you can shoot us a note with him, and yep. uh, we'll figure out how to do that over the next few months. He's doing some of his own investing now, also, which is why I was like, I, I'm probing because there's a lot of junior VCs that are trying to figure out different vehicles of, of investing. So yeah, mm -hmm. you guys should definitely, you guys should definitely talk to him. All right, perfect. Yeah, let's do it. And then if you had any questions for us, either in regards to like life, investing, this podcast, anything. Yeah. Tell me more about like your funds, where you guys like work 
straight out of college, like what the what your funds are doing now. Yeah, Clay, go for it. <laughs> yeah, we're all over the place. I'll let Tyler talk more about the access fund. I literally just switched to roles. That's why our email was all over the place. We had to update the invitation. So I'm now working as a venture partnerships manager at Visible VC. I don't know if you've connected with Mike there. He's just an awesome dude. Really love what they're building and decided to make the jump to more of the operator side. So I started there a couple of weeks ago, officially announced that yesterday on LinkedIn. So I'm like going to make an official announcement to everyone within Slack either later today or tomorrow. So that's it for me. And I'll let Tyler update you on what's new on his end. Yeah, yeah. So on my end, I recently parted ways with Great Point Ventures. So I was doing C through call it Series B slash maybe Series C investing mm -hmm. there across enterprise, fintech slash insurtech, and then digital health. Mm -hmm. And then before that, I spent two years doing international fintech, insurtech, SMB and enterprise enablement, and a little bit of select consumer, like stuff like Mirror at Point72 Ventures. Okay. And then in regards to like my venture rap sheet, before that, like in college, I worked at five funds. So oh, wow. uh, <laughs> APC, Felicis, WonderCo, Help Found Contrary, and then hated Donald Trump's immigration narrative. So wrote a huge thesis for Unshackle before they launched their fund. Damn. <laughs> yeah, you got around. That's awesome. Yeah, it's been pretty cool. Like, I think having my training wheels starting my freshman year in college was really dope. And then I also spent some time at Morgan Stanley my freshman year, which was like my four way. So like the equities, equity research stuff really helped just frame how I look at finance. So I totally feel you. And then right now, I don't know, like I'm taking the next month or so to figure it out. Like maybe I'll go to another fund if like they're really great people and they're like innovative and trying to do something really cool. And if not, like... I'll join a startup. So I've talked to a lot of really interesting startups. Hopefully things that sell into startups or into fintech or just doing something really exciting. So I'm completely open-minded. The goal is for something that's like really fast growing with a great founder and likely before the series B unless they have like incredible backers and like the growth is going to continue. In regards to the Confluence Access Fund, that's a big reason why me and Clay had to leave our funds. It was tough for us to be running a small weekend fund while working at funds. And if you just look at the economics of it, like I think I was gonna get less than a percent of carry at GBV wow. <laughs> over a six year cliff. Yeah, if you think about it like this, venture, you make less money than you would. Like I'm assuming because you were at Credit Suisse, you were qualified to go work at a hedge fund or a PE shop or continue to move up in that in, in the bank or go do whatever you wanted. So you're making technically less money. And if you're not getting carried, then it's what I should go do is probably go find a firm that like, I just am in love with the people and yeah. like in love and with, with what I'm investing in. And hopefully they give me carry. And if not, I should just go learn to build companies or do something adjacent to venture. And then because now I have the access, which you have to do venture first to have this kind of access. Yeah. Like, just do my own deals. Like we can make way more money from the Confluence Access Fund in terms of carry than we could at our firms. And then people in our community now through doing syndicates with us can make way more money from one deal or two deals with us than they might make from a year's salary or that they'd ever make from carry, assuming like that they're not the 20% or 10% of people who get promoted to the next step or the like 3% that get promoted to partner. You just didn't think it was logical, even though we love doing the jobs. That makes a ton of sense. And yeah, I needed to get out of the high finance bubble. And like one of the biggest issues in, in research was that because the hours were so long and I was just like sitting at a desk all day, 
I didn't get to meet people. I didn't know what was going on beyond just like my immediate team. And so what was, what's awesome about venture is it like opened up the entire world, right? Like you're meeting founders from all different companies, you're meeting corporates, you're meeting all sorts of different interesting people. And it's part of your job, right? Like it's important. It's not, you're not doing it. Like it's not just for fun or you're just trying to like network. It's actually like useful to the job and people look at it kindly as opposed to research. Like I was trying to talk to private companies and my boss was like, what do you do? I was like, maybe we'll do a piece on like, <laughs> private companies and, I don't know in IOT security or something and he was like all right like maybe but or like, so like the bank culture it's like why are you talking to potential clients and you're not the MD like all that right. weird stuff right. my boss was thinking I was angling for like a banking job or something because I was trying to talk to private <laughs> companies are you trying to like get these connections so that you can move over to M&A and I'm like ah, no that was funny but yeah I think like ventures really opened up the entire world for me, which I'm like super thankful for. But then from there, obviously, like you said, there's so many different opportunities that are, are probably higher paying. I will say that like my shift in terms of pay, like I'm probably getting paid the same that I was there, but my like work-life balance and hours and is every, like just everything is so much better. Like my mental health improved so much since I started venture that for me, the economics of it just totally made sense on like a per hour basis. Maybe not a year from now or even six months from now or even three months from now. Like maybe I'm like beyond that now, but at the time, hundred percent, it, it was the best move I could have done. Yeah, that's how it felt. For me, it was also just a thing where I've been doing this for so long. I just need a few months to kick it. I will definitely either become a, join another great firm at some point, either soon or in a few years or build my own. There's no way I stop like having a job that lets me have a crystal ball and a direct connectivity to like the coolest people building the coolest things. I totally feel you. Um, yeah, it's just, a, it's an awesome job. It really is. And I'm cool with it, like not paying as much as a hedge fund. Like I, because I don't know, like you get to have, not only are you with investing and people think of it as the differences between asset classes, like what type of asset class would you invest in? But I'm like, okay, the thing with venture though, is that you're actually like working with people. Like you're giving money to people to, for them to hire, to create jobs. I think that's just way more fulfilling them hey let me invest in this stock which like I'll do for me because I want to get rich but <laughs> yeah. true true yeah. yeah I just want us to all get rich <laughs> to be quite frank like I want us to all do a deal that like that one deal that we did made each like me you and Clay if you're the person who sourced the deal like a few hundred thousand or a few million dollars and whoever invested in it, a few hundred thousand or a few million that's my hope and if you could do that with a fund sick and if you can facilitate like the learning and connections needed and like just a great lifestyle needed through like working with funds, like totally should run it that way. Yeah. Clay, you got any extra thoughts? Cause I, I know we're kind of, we're like literally over the hour at this point. Yeah. What you feeling Clay? Not much. I like getting rich. So yeah. yeah let's do it. Huge thanks again to Rachel for coming on this week. And we hope that each of you are able to pick up something valuable from this episode. If you're looking to get in touch with Rachel or just follow her on social, we've linked her social profiles below and you can also find her contact info within the Confluence directory. For next steps, if you're an investor and have not already signed up to join, we encourage you to check out our website at www.confluence.vc to submit your info to become a member. If you have any feedback for us, please feel free to reach out directly either to Tyler at tyler at gpv.com or myself at clay at muckercapital.com. 
Hope to hear from you all soon.